quickly. Havis is last pass for just Ronaldo. Unbelievable! This is a team that refuses to buckle. Bale, it's on his right, hangs it up for Ronaldo. Oh, my saddles, shoots, scores! Cristiano again, and he vaporizes the defenders. Asistencia de Xavi, més capreta para Messi, 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 immens Messi, encara 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 Messi, gol, 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 Protegeu, fez o drible, que lance do Neymar, que golaço! Gol! Guerreiro, here's Giroud, a deflection and Mbappé gives France the lead. The youngest ever goal scorer at a World Cup. For France, 19-year-old Kylian Mbappé. He just shook one, shook one. All right, everyone, welcome back to the uh, second episode here of Stoppage Time. I'm Matt Prisco, your host. This week, we have an awesome guest with us, the host of La Cancha podcast, Taj Ariemi. Uh, Taj's podcast is specifically focused on Spanish football, so... Today, we're, we're going to take a look at the uh, La Liga title race, the landscape of La Liga today. We'll do a little preview of the Champions League, talk some potential sleeper teams in there. Champions League uh, round of 16 starts in February, I believe February 14th. So we get a little time, but uh, to follow that up, we'll round out the episode with some Super League talk, talk about a new format that's recently been proposed by uh, Barcelona. It could be interesting and other than that, we'll just kind of plan on just talking talking crap about soccer here, man. Welcome back. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back um, in this version of the podcast. I was on the other version, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you about soccer. You're one of the most intelligent people I've met on Twitter about the game. No, 100% same to you. Obviously, one of the things I think we both share is just passion in the sport. I think we both also follow um, different leagues and have some different interests. But in the end of the day, we just love the sport, love the cultural aspect of the sport. So what got you to do, you know, obviously you're doing a podcast now, like myself, what got you to put a focus on Spanish football? Like, has this always been something you've been passionate about your whole life? Yeah, like it's going back to when I first got into soccer. Like I was listening to your podcast last weekend. I remember how you said that you like baseball over soccer. I was some, somewhat similar in terms of not with baseball because I'm not from the United States, obviously, but I love WWE. And um, my dad always used to put on soccer all the time when I used to get super pissed off. But another thing that I liked was I had this thing for superstar culture. And I remember in the 2002, three, or 2003 summer, David Beckham was like the big thing. And everyone wanted to be like him. He was like, everyone wanted to get his hairstyle and everything. And then I was like, oh, I really like this guy. And then I see he goes to Real Madrid and he's playing soccer. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get into the sport just to like follow, follow this guy's trajectory, his career path. And um, my dad was an Arsenal fan, but like he always really liked Spanish football. He would watch it at night and we started watching it together and I grew to get to know the teams, the culture, like not just the big two, Real Madrid and Barcelona. But it's funny at that point, Barcelona, like from what I remember, I always used to see them mid-table. So I didn't <laughs> get the sense of how big they were until later on, like because teams like Deportivo and Valencia were the ones challenging Real Madrid. And so from then, I just developed an interest for that because I feel that year, 0304 was one of the most... um interesting years in soccer because a lot of people looked at this work that this happened and they looked at the upsets and when you look at that year you see greece won um the euros i guess all the odds and porto and uh, monaco were the final for the champions league and just that drama that like unpredictability and that's what got me into soccer as a whole 
and uh, just the vibrance of Spanish football got me into that. Well, talk to me a little bit about that. I think you mentioned something that was really interesting that year that you were particularly getting into the game, um, 2003-04, when Deportivo, didn't they make the semifinals and just lose to like Milan? Yeah, yeah. So so they made the semifinals. I believe they lost to Porto, but they beat um, Juventus in the last 16. Oh, I had to bring that one up. No, but yeah. was, it the year, was it the year before that they lost? Because I, I feel like they made some pretty deep runs. There were a oh. few smaller Spanish teams that made some pretty deep runs in the early 2000s in the Champions League. Forgive me for not remembering exactly which ones, but oh. I'm sure you oh, yeah. trust me here in, my, in the audience. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wanted to go to the Milan game because the Milan game was something special. And I feel in some ways that somewhat cemented um, my love for Spanish football. Because I remember that game and I wondered why my dad and I were watching it. Because the first leg, Milan absolutely tore apart Deportivo. Kaká had one of his best nights. Yes. He scored an amazing goal. And then in the second leg, I was like, this is a foregone conclusion. Why aren't we watching like another match? I forgot. I think Porto Leon was on at that time. And so I was like, maybe we should watch that one. And then my dad was just like, just be patient. Let's just watch this. And before you know it, 3-0 at halftime. Deportivo was beating AC Milan, and this was the great AC Milan. It's it's not I was going to say that. This isn't just any AC Milan team. This was one of the greatest teams of all time, period. So I, I remember yeah. that pretty distinctly, their comeback. And then, so did they go back-to-back years to the semifinals? Yeah, they, they were always in around that, like quarterfinals, semifinals, quarterfinals, semifinals. That, that was... Deportivo at that point. Valencia too, they were there or thereabouts. And then 2006, we saw Villarreal get to the semifinals. And right. it's funny because a lot of a lot, when a lot of people talk about the glory age of Spanish football, people talk about the Messi Cristiano era. But for me, that era prior to it, before like let's say 2000, 2006 or seven, I'll say that was the glory age of Spanish football because a lot of teams that you wouldn't expect went to the Champions League and did a good job. And they yeah. really competed against the best in Europe. That's that's the piece that I think gets lost on a lot of people. And I think on myself too, it's really it's a really fair point. I think a lot of people associate the glory age of La Liga being the Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi, and then the Simeone, Atletico Madrid team kind of being snuck in there. And that's pretty fair to, to be honest when you consider how much Champions League success all those teams had Atletico Madrid got a couple league titles in there under Simeone as well, which is definitely a huge, uh, huge accomplishment, especially given how good the Real Madrid and Barca teams are. But you forget in the early 2000s how good the talent was widespread across La Liga. Um, and even though Barcelona wasn't necessarily the powerhouse that they were with Lionel Messi, they had some pretty amazing talent. They had Ronaldinho, Thierry Henry at one point came way, way later. Um, yeah. Samuel Eto'o. Um, was there and had a couple uh, finals goals for Barcelona um, in the Champions League finals. Like they had some amazing players too, even before them. Yeah, yeah, they were they were excellent Barcelona in that in that era because um, they weren't the finished product. They weren't the all conquering Barcelona, but you have to remember that like, this was a team that, for example, in two thousands they got to a semi final, which they lost to Valencia. In two thousand they got to semi final, they lost to Valencia. In two thousand two they got to another semi final. And they lost to Real Madrid. And if you talk to Barcelona fans about that era, it's almost seen as a dark ages because they didn't win anything. But in the Champions League, they were always super competitive. And you take it to 2003, where they lost to Juventus and in the quarterfinals. And that was possibly one of their worst years in Spanish football in the last 20 years. And But it's just now we see Barcelona, we're, we're seeing them winning 80 to 90% of the games domestically. But it never used to always be that way. Yeah. No, definitely really interesting. Um, I don't think a lot of people think about La Liga in that time period that often. Taking a look at La Liga now, um, the table's really interesting. It, Madrid are actually two points behind Barcelona after 14 matches right now. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting when you just take a look at the raw numbers Um I didn't think this team's left this kind of impression on me, but Barcelona have really only allowed five goals um, in those 14 matches. Three of those goals, though, and I think this has to be said, did come in El Clasico. 
They look like a team that can fight all the way to the end for the league title. Well, how do you see this kind of playing out? And yeah, what do you like, think of their defensive record? The defensive record, um, I, I could say it's a bit misleading because right. one thing that Barcelona had in previous seasons that, or didn't have in previous seasons that they have now this season is the performance of Marc-Andre Testegen. He's been one of the best players in La Liga. And that's something that's really helped them. And I also feel Barcelona, they've recovered a bit of that ball retention, tiki-taka style that we saw from Spain. So it makes it a lot harder to really break them down. But sometimes I feel we've seen a bit of two Barcelonas, a Barcelona in La Liga, which feels very comfortable, very um, all-conquering. They feel like it's their team that scares again because obviously they brought in Robert Lewandowski, who's one of the best strikers in the world, um, if not the best. I'm not sure. Erling Haaland might have something to say about that. But in the Champions League, yeah. we've seen that they've had that fragility when things have gone wrong. And that's something that I would say with Barcelona this season is that, yes, the defensive record is good. They've done really well. But I don't think they've been put into a situation where they've had to um, really, really struggle. And the only time they got put in that situation was against Real Madrid. And they didn't really give a good impression of that, especially it came up a week where they had that crazy game against Inter in the Camp Nou. And um, defensively, they were all over the place. But yeah. I'll say fair credit to Barcelona because they've had a lot of injury record, a lot of injuries to their key center backs. But somehow, either Tostergan makes a good save or a striker misses an unbelievable chance, they're still there with that amazing defensive record. No, it's for, it's true. But I think the the point that we made it earlier, it does get proven out when you consider three goals in El Clasico. They allowed three goals to Real Madrid. I think we can kind of accept that. But allowing three goals to Inter in the Champions League, they allowed three goals to Bayern Munich in their sec- in the second game that they played against them. Um, their defense obviously obviously does look a little bit fragile. How do you see this playing out, this title race um, in La Liga? Because I feel like even with a, sh- a shaky defense, with the attacking names that you mentioned in La Liga, they're going to be able to still have success, still win games. Um, do you see them fighting all the way to the end against Real Madrid? Currently have the lead, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I'll say, and I'm sure Real Madrid fans are throwing out their hair that we haven't spoken about them. They're obviously the current La Liga champions, the current um, European champions, and they started the season super impressive. I'm surprised that they even lost their or tied the season because they were just so perfect in how they played and the way they scored goals came from everywhere. And you have to remember that Karim Benzema hasn't really featured that much for Real Madrid. Right. So, he's been injured for, I, I think he's only played single digit games this season. So, yeah. Yeah. And I feel one, the one game that I can take to that signified the growth of Real Madrid under Carlo Ancelotti was the Madrid Derby against Atletico Madrid because that was a game where you didn't have Benzema. And you needed the other players to step up. And boy, did they step up. Vinicius set an amazing game. The backdrop to it was the thing with the dancing and the racist comments made by some guy on Spanish radio. Yeah. But he did. He really did have a really good game. He was going to score. Rodrigo, had a, he scored, obviously. He had a good game. Tremini was there. Valverde was there. So we're seeing a really good Real Madrid side. A Real Madrid side that's a lot better than last season, which could be scary but i i agree time. i agree with yeah. you when you say that too valverde having the season that he's had is huge chuameni is continuing to make strides that midfield just looks like they're never gonna die like I, they can't get yeah. bellingham this year or unless if that happens they're gonna control european football again for the next 10 years and win probably at a rate even higher than that because they already look like they can control the game perfectly like they have the best midfield in the world there's there's no doubt about it. Top to bottom, they're as good a team as, as there is. And they just have that European championship DNA. I don't know what else to say about them. Like, they always yeah. seem to find a way in the Champions League. Like, if you look at all the results, to be fair, they played all the best teams. But I don't know if they were always the best team in no. in terms of, like, the run of play. I think it was leaning towards, you know, PSG for a long time. Two mistakes, they somehow end up with a win against Chelsea. Chelsea played awesome against them. But they, yeah. Real Madrid just took advantage of every chance that they had. Some moments of magic from Benzema, from Modric, obviously, um, and that incredible pass uh, to Rodrigo. And I, in the 
we saw against Manchester City the exact same thing. They made a late comeback. It just feels like they have this magic about them. And I don't think that's ever going to end for some reason. I, I just what do you think that is? <laughs> like, how do you describe it? You know what I'm talking about, but it's hard to describe to people who have a following. Oh. Honestly, sometimes they usually say they used to talk about Zidane and they used to say in Spain that he had a flower underneath <laughs> underneath him. And the thing is, Real Madrid, this thing about the never say die attitude, the comeback attitude, is something that's been with them throughout their history. Like I remember those this quote with this Real Madrid player who's passed away, I think in the 80s. Inter beat them in San Siro, I think by 2-1 or 2-0. And it's like and he says this phrase in Spanish English is like 90 minuto and the Benabel son muito longo. Like it's very long. And that has carried Romanger throughout their history. Like we saw what happened in the Champions League. I also even take it back to 2018 in the Champions League when they somehow got past Bayern. I don't know how, but like the goalkeeper makes an error. <laughs> and then Liverpool, what happened, happened in that game. They've had leagues like in 2017 where the late goals they scored, the never say die attitude this was always there. And that's something I really admire about Real Madrid as a club is that yeah. they're a club that believe in winning and they believe that they're destined to win. And it's and it shows too. It's the results really do speak for themselves. Like their European track record's insane. I never imagined they'd get a Champions League this quickly without Cristiano, but that's just the nature of their club, man. They bring in the next big, big talents. And going forward, they're going to have Shuamani, Kamavinga in that midfield. Uh, Valverde can play as a right wing, obviously, but he's a great midfielder. Um, they're beyond all set going forward, to say the least. Vinicius, I never imagined he was going to be this good. 32 goals last season. It's like, where the hell did that come? He was in single-digit goals, for real. Um, oh, yeah. His entire career up until last season. Uh, I think Ancelotti has a lot to do with this too. And it's probably the biggest reason why they'll end up finding a way to get the title off Barcelona, even though Barcelona brought in a ton of talent this summer, amazing attacking talent. um, I just don't, I still see Real Madrid finding a way to win the league. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with you. Can I say one more thing on Real Madrid? Oh yeah. Because I feel one thing that people that often gets like forgotten in people's minds is that Real Madrid, why they're good now is because they've done the work in terms of transition. They had a couple of four seasons from 17, 18, although they did win the Champions League 18, 19 and 1920, where they weren't this good. They were in that phase where they were brooding in the younger players like Vinicius was getting opportunities, Valverde was getting opportunities. Uh, they were trying to phase out the old guard. And what you see right now is the product of years of sacrifice in terms of not investing in the transfer market, trusting in what they have, which is not something you were associated with Real Madrid because we usually think of them as being that galactic team. But yeah. we're seeing them breed out talents. They are, they're also signing this guy called Endrick. Endrick, so, I was just about to say this too. It's not stopping <laughs> from here because this kid's nasty. Yeah. And they paid, they, to be fair, they're paying $70 million for him. So yeah. that's a huge price to pay for someone that young. It is, but I'll say what Florentino Perez would say in rebuttal will be that we might as well pay some minutes for Andrick because if we do let him go to Borussia Dortmund or Benfica and they do the same process, it might cost us $200 million. So exactly. I was going to say, in the end of the day, making the investment up front so that worst-case scenario, you can sell him and he's still worth it if you don't think he's Real Madrid-level talent, but he's going to be. Like, this kid is this kid's filthy. They have yeah, another Brazilian, and, another Brazilian superstar coming for them. So. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that Neymar transfer has really stung them. But w- one thing I'll say with Real Madrid is that the weakness that I see with them is the calendar because they're going to go through lots of miles, and I think that might even affect them in the Champions League because yep. they're going to go to Saudi Arabia for the Super Cup. Bear in mind, Barcelona will do that as well. They're going to go to Morocco for uh, the club. Um, I think Club oh, World Cup. Club World Cup. Yep. And that's a lot of miles that against their players are going to be traveling to their players are also going to be involved in the World Cup. So, and they are playing in a tougher competition with all due respect to the Europa League and Barcelona. No, so no doubt. That's, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Barcelona plays Manchester United um, in the Europa League, which 
you'd expect them to win that, but at the same time, it wouldn't be the most shocking result if Manchester United knocked them out. And then they just get the chance to focus on league play the entire time. And then Copa del Rey, which I'm assuming they're still in. Um, so, so don't care about Copa del Rey. They don't care unless it's to complete their trouble, but like, yeah, I, I, that's a very fair point. That's probably the reason why this might be a pretty good race throughout the entire season. Um, in the end, do you? I think Real Madrid's going to end up winning. More importantly, what do you, what do you agree? Um, I I would I would have said that before, but seeing how Lewandowski is, I I just feel like he has that fire in his belly, and I just feel the fact that Barcelona don't have that many like it seems their priority is the league, even though they're in the Europe League. Yep. So I just feel, given that, and given Real Madrid, they obviously they're not going to throw away the Champions League. They're going to be like fighting to the nail. But we don't know what would happen against Liverpool. And if they if they are fighting on both fronts, I just see Barcelona having that slight edge over them. Because, That's a really fascinating Champions League yeah. time, by the way. It's really, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate for both sides that Liverpool and Real Madrid drew each other this early. Um, we'll get into that into a moment for a moment. One thing I did want to let you speak about because obviously we both find this really interesting. There is a pretty unbelievable seven point gap between third and eleventh place. Uh, La Liga's got a really strong middle class, so. Can you explain to us why is the gap so tight? Like, who are the teams that are really, really impressing in your mind? And we can kind of chat through this as we go. But I want to learn from you who are the who's standing out, and in in your mind, who are the players going forward that we're going to be able to recognize from this run um, who might be overachieving right now? So, can you kind of speak to that that uh, strong middle class there? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to start with talking about um, two teams that have struggled <laughs> because I feel that's the good background to talk about why third to 11th is so tight. And those two teams are Sevilla and Atletico Madrid, as you can see by what happened in Champions League. And I feel that's something that we've seen recently in the Spanish League, especially at the top level, is that teams like Atletico and Sevilla, they, they, they've not really been as good as they've been in the past years in the Champions League. Like Atleti, they usually qualify, and then this year they finished fourth in a group that didn't have. I think Bayer Leverkusen was the only team from top five leagues, which was yeah. kind of disappointing. Sevilla over the summer they've committed to supporting suicide. They're more focused on escaping relegation than finishing in top four. And this is a team that last season they were the only team that had the chance of catching Real Madrid. So yeah, what happened um, there? <laughs> I'll say that has to do with Monchi because Monchi is a guy who normally in Spanish football circles is seen as one of the greatest sporting directors like in the world. But in the last couple of years, we've seen what happened with Roma where Nyingland recently in an interview said that Monchi was the guy who destroyed Roma. And it sort of had that impact to Sevilla because the strategy was to have an agent squad, but a very experienced squad. And that was built on the basis of Diego Carlos and Jules Kunde. And we sort of saw towards the end of last season that team was in decline. Lopetegui's tactics didn't help, but it's a team that really needed change. They sell Diego Carlos to Aston Villa, Koundé to Barcelona, and they've not fully replaced them well because they brought in Yantu from Bayern, who's, who might looks like a good talent, but he's still very raw. Marcao, who they got from, I believe it's Galatasaray, he's injured all the time. And it just questions, you just questions Munchie's strategy because Isco he buys, he's gone in January, falls out Munchie. Yanazai, the manager, doesn't rate. You have a team that can't score goals, a team without a style, without a soul. And everything has to be blamed on the, on the season. They're, they're danger. I mean, they're in the relegation zone. Like, there's a really good yeah. chance they could get relegated based on where things stand right now. That's crazy. That's got to be one of the biggest drops in any league history. Yeah. It's, it's What's the 18th or whatever it was? Where did they finish last year? Last year they finished fourth. But I, I'll yeah, say no, that. Right? So fourth to, fourth to 18th, that's a that's an insane drop. That's got to be. I'll look that up. We'll find yeah. it for the next episode. But that could potentially be one of the biggest drop-offs. Yeah, but even the fourth thing, I, I'll say, I know for Sevilla, fourth is, that's that should be like their league. But I'll say that's a bit of a disappointment because you look at the season that Barcelona had last season, 
yeah. season that Atletico Madrid had last season. The fact that at some points in the league, they had a double-digit lead over both of them. The fact that they finished behind both of them shows that that decline started last season. That's really interesting. The director did not do anything or even made the situation worse. Speaking of last season, what did you think of what do you think of Kunda going forward? Uh Kunde, I, I feel is a very good center back. I really, really rate him. And I feel it was a big coup for Barcelona to get him. Um I feel if he went to Chelsea, like they would have had a super team right now. Cause I really rate this guy. He's a guy who's loves defending. He puts his life on the line sometimes for his team. And so, like, he's going to be, he's one of the reasons why I feel Barcelona might have an edge in the title race going back to them. That's very interesting. He, I thought it was pretty impressive that he played as well as he did out of position for France. Um, So, looking at some of the other teams that are in this, like Celta Vigo at 11, Osasuna in 10th place. Um, Wait, no, I'm looking at the wrong, I'm looking at the wrong one. Valencia, uh, Mallorca at 11th. What yeah. the hell happened there? Are they supposed to be an <laughs> Asian team? Yeah, yeah. Like going back to like, let's now that we've bashed the teams that are meant to be doing well, let's talk about teams that are really impressing. And I'll say in La Liga, there are like two or three clubs that are doing way better than expected. And first of all, um, before it gets to Mallorca, which I really want to talk about, I'm going to talk about Rayo Vallecano because I'm not sure if listeners might know this, but Rayo, they beaten. Valencia, Sevilla, Real Madrid, they've got some points at the Camp Nou and at the Wanda Metropolitano. So against the historic, like, five really good teams in Spanish football in the last decade, they've not lost against them. And it's not like they've done that just by sitting down, parking the bus. No, like, they've come out, they've dominated in the game against Real Madrid. That's the only team Real Madrid has lost this season. They just outplayed them, and they were just, like, super fast, super energetic. They have a manager, Iraola, who I feel is very underrated. He's he's done things with other smaller clubs, and he's gotten, for example, Mirandez two years ago. He got them to the semifinals of the Copa del Rey. And it's not like they beat like second division teams all around the way. They beat Villarreal, Sevilla, Celta Vigo to get to that semifinal. And he's continued that process with Rayo. Rayo also got to the semifinals of the Copa del Rey last season. And they're just having a really good season. They're a very fun team to watch. They they finished in 12th last season as well, too. So it's been actually a yeah. really successful project. I don't think people, a lot of people know about. Um, what are some of who are some of the other teams that have really impressed you? Yeah, Mallorca, as you mentioned, Mallorca. I can't believe that. For those who don't know, Mallorca is like one of the most beautiful islands in the world, just off the coast of uh, I think it's like southeastern Spain now. And yeah, it's it's one of the most beautiful places you could ever travel to. I don't know how there's a professional soccer team there. I feel like that would just be like <laughs> vacation. Like. Yeah. Yeah. It's super distracting. But the thing with Mallorca is they have a coach who's super experienced in Javier Aguirre. He's one of the coaches from North America who has the most experience in European football. And one thing that's really helped Mallorca is, is they have the budget Lewandowski playing for them, who is – Verda Mariki, the Pirates, who's been amazing. I'm sure if you're a Lazio fan and you're listening to this, you might be surprised. This is the same Mariki that played for us, but he's come to Mallorca and he said in an interview that this gave him his last chance to really do well in the top five league. And he's become an idol there. He wants to be like Samuel Eto'o was in Mallorca or Webo, who were legends in the past. And only Lewandowski has more goals than this guy. He's Eight the... goals in 12 matches. Sorry to interrupt you. That's... Yeah. That's a pretty insane return for somebody on a team. It, it, it really is. And that's why they're doing so well. Like he scored the winning goal against Atletico. He's he's on fire right now. And um a lot of teams might want him in La Liga or outside La Liga at the moment. But I hope he stays put for America's sake because he's someone who can be that franchise player that the fans can idolize and which is good for mid table teams to have. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. What about Osasuna? They're in they're in seventh place. Looks like they were around mid table last season, so they're all they're kind of climbing up. Never really think of them as a team that anyone's really looking out for. Is there much to them? Uh, what's to them is that if you're looking for a team that plays someone like Liverpool, but in a in like a very low budget version of that, you can find that in Osasuna, in that they're super intense. Like when you know when you play against them, you know you're gonna fight for them. 
actually they were the first team to make Real Madrid drop points this season. And they proceeded with that. That's right. I remember that game. 1-1, right? Yeah. I yeah. The and it's been, the manager is so, he's so brilliant with the way he leads them. And the thing with teams like Osasuna, Mallorca, um, Rayo, is that there seems like you normally expect them to be at the other end of the table. Exactly. But they have good managers, they have good recruitment strategies, and that's why they're somewhat in that like floating mid-table and maybe with what we've seen this season, maybe there's a chance they might finish seventh or somewhere in Europe or even who knows, even in Champions League, right? Yeah, you literally literally have no idea at this point. <laughs> um, one of the teams that's still up there this year um, was up there last season as well, Real Betis. Seems like they've made some strides uh, as a, as an organization, as a team. What do you make of this squad? Yeah, I really like them because I feel Real Betis is one of the stories of La Liga so far in that they're a team that they're certainly a big club. Like people used to compare them with Newcastle for obvious reasons because a big fan base, but they're always like lang- languishing down the relegation zone. Unlike Newcastle, they haven't really had the beauty of Saudi money to help them. <laughs> but what they have done exactly. is they've been smart in recruitment. They've brought in players like Nabil Fakir and they've taken a risk on Bora Iglesias and Canales. And they have a really, really astute coach, Emmanuel Pellegrini, who knows the league who's helped them to win their first title in 17 years. I can't, believe he's there. I, I, I can't believe I forgot he's there. Yeah. He's obviously a great manager, yeah. For those who might be familiar, he's he won uh, some titles at Manchester City, and he is a pretty decent background, if I'm not mistaken, Pellegrini. What are some of the other clubs he's been at? I know he's, he's a giant. as well, and he was – and people who might have forgotten this or might not know about this, but he was the Villarreal manager who got them to that semifinal, the famous semifinal against Arsenal. Right. And had the likes of Roman Riccomi playing for him. He coached Real Madrid as well. Uh, he coached Real Madrid sad. as well, but he got he had a great record and he got canned the next year. What happened? Yeah. Uh, Real Madrid always, like, the thing with them is, or Florentino Perez sometimes, is that he has the manager in his head. And yeah. he wanted Mourinho. He really wanted Mourinho, and he didn't give Pellegrini the tools that he needed. And people look at that, and that was Real Madrid's record. I think that that's the second um, points tally in their history, and that was the record points tally when he, he achieved that. So they were 30, he, is... 36, 5, and 7 in all competitions. I, yeah. I should have put two and two together. You know what? To be fair, I think Mourinho was a good decision. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's an amazing record. That's what kind of stood out. I'm just I'm taking a look at his uh his career winning percentage. I mean, the guy's won a lot. He's had a really great career. That's interesting that for two years straight they've performed pretty well here in La Liga. Any chance for them um to actually sneak in? And we talk about anybody's got a chance at this point because Real Sociedad's in third place, Atle- uh, Athletic Bilbao's in fourth place, and Atletico Madrid are actually in fifth. So Really, anyone's got a shot to sneak in there. All those teams are just only a couple points, two or three, away from all the teams we just talked about. Um, yeah. what are, what's their chances of uh, making Champions League football? I'll say the chance is very high because if you ask anybody who followed La Liga going into the season, like they had a feeling that Sevilla wasn't going to have the strongest season. Obviously, we didn't know it was going to be this bad. But the two teams that really stood out were that we felt, okay, if Sevilla did that bad, will be Betis and Villarreal. Villarreal, obviously, with what happened to Yonai Emery going to Aston Villa, and they have a new project on the Setien. That makes them, maybe they're under reconstruction a bit, but Betis, they were by far and large the fourth best team in La Liga last season. Yeah. And this season, they've had issues because a lot of the games, they've had disciplinary issues. So they've had to play with 10 men, especially in the crazy derby where they, it was 10 versus nine against Sevilla so I feel if they can sort out that disciplinary issue and they can really focus on being what they were last season wow you have a real games. yeah he's in with red cards excuse me nine yeah, I'm wrong nine <laughs> holy smokes yeah. that's and great this is a team that in Europa League they've done really well they were in a group with Roma and they didn't lose to Roma they won in the Olympico um, so if they get their things together they are the favorites for me to get that top four sport along with Atletico Madrid who I assume would improve as the season goes on but I do 
expect Athletic Bilbao and Real Sociedad to really give them a run for their money. Awesome. That's a really interesting season going on in La Liga. So really yeah. appreciate all the insight on that. I honestly yeah. I, I think I learned a lot just even getting getting your perspective on La Liga. Truthfully, like this is the league for me that I don't get to watch as much as I want to. I watch it, I feel yeah. like every week at one point, but there's just so many games going on. Like, for example, I mean there's a game going on right now in the Premier League with Arsenal and West Ham. Like I I like to watch the Premier League. Pretty much, I'd say first and foremost, but I'm Italian. My favorite team's Juventus, so in tandem, I'm watching Serie A just as much. Um, La Liga just always seems to be the league that I just, I'm like, oh my god, that's on. I might as well throw. I should throw that on, and it's always yeah. pretty, pretty entertaining stuff. So, um, yeah, be a really interesting end to the season. And can I say one more thing? Like yeah. before we move on from an Italian perspective, I'll say, obviously, Carlo Ancelotti is the main on show in terms of Italian managers in La Liga, but an Italian manager who I've, I'm super impressed with is Gennaro Gattuso, who's coming at Valencia. Yes. And uh, people might not know, like, I really like Valencia. They're my team in La Liga at the, at the moment, and they play some really brilliant football. And I was I wondered whether he was that good. And I had to check his record at Milan and Napoli, and I realized that it wasn't, it wasn't actually a bad manager in those clubs. Like, they got top five, top six finishes, but... Yep. In Valencia, he's managed to change the entire identity of the club. This was a club that was depressed, and he's coming in. Although the team, they might be 10th or mid-table, like 43,000 fans show up almost every week to Mestalla, which is not something that we've seen even in the best of times of Valencia. So Valencia fans are really enjoying the football, and they might be a dark horse to get into the top seven or even top four. Interesting. Good for Gattuso. I, I, his problem with Napoli was that he just became a little bit overly pr- pragmatic. Um, I'm not really sure what the situation's been at, at Valencia, but I know that's where people got frustrated with him. The reality is they had an aging squad. They did all the right things from a scouting pers- perspective and brought in some amazing players. So, I mean, hopefully he can continue to do well with Valencia. One of the players actually, now that you bring them up and then we'll shift over real quick to our last thing. Cause I do want to make sure we touch on champions league and super league here um, with enough time, but Musa I'm, I'm American. A lot of Americans are really interested in Musa's progress. Um, what are your thoughts overall on him and his performances in La Liga so far? Yeah. Musa has benefited tremendously from having Gattuso as a coach because his previous two managers, Marcelino, um, not Marcelino, Saladas and um, Bordelas played him as a right midfielder. But once one Scott Sousa came in with that change of style, because Valencia before used to be a very pragmatic, very defensive team. But Gattuso made a team that's not afraid to have the ball. Because when he came in, it was like a lot of players are scared to have the ball. And that's really helped me so because he's become one of the linchpins of that Valencia midfield and playing in the central midfield position, playing more centrally distributing balls scoring goals like he's a player that i feel he's going to be the star of the team if the team gets into the top four i'm afraid he might leave at the end of the season obviously but i i think if he leaves at the end of the season he's going to give valencia lots of money and it's going to be great for his career because he's a player who's i think is going to be a superstar in the future no doubt about it i think he's got the potential for sure to be the best american midfielder by a lot um let's talk champions league a little bit here round of 16 doesn't start until february 14th like i mentioned but we've known the round of 16 matchups for a while um i mean look i think we know the favorites right are going to be real madrid psg manchester city maybe bayern munich and you don't want to count out liverpool right so call that your top five i'm not really sold on any of those five teams in the sense that like you're not going into the champions league knockout stage and being like, Oh, if there's one team you don't want to play right now, it's so-and-so I guess that's probably Real Madrid, but at the same time, I think it's pretty open. I think that PSG Manchester city are equally as dangerous for other reasons. And if Bayern get going, we've seen them per usual. They're, they're always amazing when they're hitting their stride. So you know who are some of the sleeper teams in your mind? We have a few uh, we have a few opportunities for some upsets in this Champions League. What are your thoughts on who, who the sleeper teams might be? And then eventually, I'd love to hear how you think this tournament ultimately ends. 
Yeah, first of all, I'm going to say like it's it's almost a shame that we're going to get a PSG Bayern and Real Madrid Liverpool so early in the tournament, given how. It's a shame, I know. I know. Yeah. But, but going on to the actual question and the, and the sleeper teams, a team that was in a group of PSG that I'm, I'm super, also very impressed with was Benfica. Um, I was impressed with them last season because they were in a group of Barcelona, obviously, not a Barcelona that was like down in tombs, but they did really well to get out of that group. And they still have Darwin Nunez. You expected them to like collapse when they're in the same group with PSG. And I'm sorry, Matt, Juventus, but... That's Given okay. how they performed in that group, I'm I'm super excited about them. I don't feel I don't think they've lost a game this season. If I'm I could be wrong, but, but the way they've recruited and bringing in Enzo Fernandez, they brought in uh, Gonzalo Ramos as a striker to replace Darwin. They brought in some defensive reinforcements, which has made their team super solid. And I just go back to their game against not just against Juventus, which they did very well both legs, but against PSG because people would have expected them to lose both games to PSG and Juventus got away back into, but that's not what happened. And they were super competitive in both games against PSG and I don't think PSG really dominated them. So Not at all. I feel yeah. In that first great. half, actually, I think it was really, really, if, if anything, Benfica might have actually had the upper hand. Um, and, by, and to your point, by the way, I, I did want to interrupt you and, and say that you're right. They haven't, they're unbeaten in all competitions right now. Uh, 12-1-0 in the Portuguese league, and they finished top of the group in a group with PSG and Juve, like you said. Juve, it's not a big accomplishment to be here. Juve is still a big club. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's they scored 16 goals and won the group, so uh, clearly yeah. they they did an amazing job replacing the talent that left them. And I think it really was just Darwin Nunez. Yeah, it really was just him. And they brought in a new coach, Hodger Schmidt, who came from PSV. And he's really like got the team playing super well. I wonder whether after this season he gets his big move to a big league or whether he sticks with Benfica. But the good news for Benfica is they're going to play in the round of 16, another team that surprised them in the Champions League, which is Club Brugge. For, I think, for four match days, they didn't concede a goal <laughs> until Porto, like, Smashed them 4 0, and they were in a group of FS coming through it. So I looked at that very closely, and they have a Canadian, uh, Tayshon Buchanan, who plays for them. And But I feel this is such a good draw for both of them, mostly for Benfica. I think they're going to really do well in this group. And I do say they have a really good chance of getting to the semifinals. And I know that might be controversial, oh, it's Benfica, right? But I look at the other draws, I see Milan, Spurs. I feel they can compete against those teams. Um, we might have an argument with this, but like even with um, Inter Porto, I feel they can compete against any team that gets out. Oh of no, I have no, time. I have no argument. I definitely think Benfica can take it to Inter. I mean, keep in mind we beat Inter, we beat them pretty. <laughs> you know, like I don't think Inter's actually having a tougher season than most people might think. They're in fifth place, but they're incredibly inconsistent. Like one week they just can't score goals, um, and then other weeks they do nothing more goals when they get forward. Yeah. So in their defense this year is really that's been the key with Inter. Not to go too too heavy on uh Italian soccer here, but the key with them is that their defense has been really inconsistent and hasn't looked the same. So uh I think yeah. there's a actually just kind of staying on the theme of Portuguese teams like super tough in the Champions League. Um that's been kind of the case I think historically but in the last few years we've seen in we can certainly mean not just European football fans, but myself as a Juve fan, I feel like I hate playing Portuguese teams. Uh, Porto knocked us out a few years ago, actually, when we had Cristiano Ronaldo um, and Fede, Fede Chiesa's first season. Chiesa had those three incredible goals, and they still ended up beating us. But really tough outs in the Champions League. Yeah. I think they've got a great shot against Inter as well. Yeah, yeah, they really have. Um, but speak, going to, like, let's stick to the theme of Italian teams and Napoli. They're another dark horse because they get so good. And Are they even a dark see horse the anymore, too? Um, I, I feel maybe people who, let's say, just follow like English football or just Spanish football might not see them as a potential challenger. But right, right, yeah. Especially given what they did against Liverpool, I think the rest of the world opened their eyes out because exactly. when, when you look at Napoli, Look at the players they lost. They lost Koulibaly, they lost Mertens, they lost his senior. You wondered whether this was the end of an era for them, how long it would take them to 
get into like that phase of being old Napoli again, but like they're top of Serie A by a huge margin, very points. They've done really well in the Champions League. They have the Georgian guy, um, which we nicknamed in our, our podcast, KK. Dude, no, I, I've got it. I've been so mesmerized by this dude that I had to at least learn how to say his freaking name. This kid is he's unbelievable, man. He's a, he's got the legit – people think I'm crazy when I say this, but just keep in mind he's only played you know just about 20 games at a high level professionally, and he's already left such an impression on us that I, I think he could be one of the most complete forwards in history if he keeps going at this rate. I know people think I'm crazy when I say this, but he could be just under an Mbappe, just under an Mbappe level prospect. His dribbling, like he can take anybody on and embarrass them. I'm not saying it's that easy to do to Trent Alexander Arnold, but watch the film there. Um, he, he was it was pretty easy for him. Like even when he got the ball in Liverpool's midfield, like he was ducking in and out of challenges. He's massive. He looks like the midfield version of Erling Holland. Like you're not supposed to be that good at that size. Like his touch is fantastic. His passing is unbelievable. He's got incredible range. We've seen him score some great goals from outside the penalty area. He seems to get into the right positions, got great finishing ability. Like he's just an overall incredible player. I'm really excited to see where his career goes and doing it next to Victor Ozeman. I'm hoping for, I'm hoping for Serie's sake that we can continue to see this. Um, Napoli, no shortage in attacking talent and i still somehow think uh, you argue that their midfield is the best part of their team man like that midfield is so yeah. unbelievably complete like stanislav stanislav uh, labaka another former oh, like, yeah. Vigo. Yeah. unbelievable yeah. to see that he was going to come in and be one of the perfect players to fit into this midfield and play next to angisa who's been a total beast oh, box man. to box i, and I, then, I love angisa He's unbelievable. And then Zielinski, it's like that's the perfect that's the perfect guy in that midfield. Like, yeah. Labaka kind of runs the game, and Gisa is that kind of bull going back and forth, physical presence, and can score goals, like, can make any pass. Just an unbelievably complete player. And Zielinski, yeah. from an attacking perspective, is amazing. So you could argue that they have one of the best teams right now on form in all of Europe. So it, Yeah, they do. And you have to count that they still have like Giovanni Simeone's come off the bench. Um, Unbelievable, so he, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, Raspadori it, off the bench. Yeah. Like they've got some firepower, man. And Dombele comes off the bench for them in their midfield, too. Yeah. It's it's a it's a, it's wonderful the recruitment that they've done, especially in a in a season where we've seen a lot of big spending, is that there's still a way to create a competitive team by just being very good at scouting. And that's something that I really, that's why I'm really high on Napoli. I'm really high on Benfica. Exactly. I hope they don't meet each other in the quarterfinals if they both make it through the quarterfinals. And let's not count out Eintracht Frankfurt because I think that's also a really good story. We saw what they did to Barcelona in terms of not just beating them and embarrassing them in the Camp Nou, but the how their fans embarrassed Barcelona in the Camp Nou and it became like almost like an Eintracht Frankfurt home game. Well, Eintracht so, Frankfurt, I think it's important to note, have notoriously some of the best fans in the whole world. Um, it's not in my nature to give the Germans compliments, but they do have great fans all across the country and the Frankfurt fans are incredible. That was an amazing game. Shout out to my boy Kostic, uh, now, now, now a Juve player, but you're right. They still do have a really great team. Um, another one of the players that I'm hoping to get my hand, hoping to get Juve gets their hands on is Indica, the uh, left center back that they have there, like can play in a back three, really good in a back two too. So would love yeah. to see him on Juve as well. And there's also Camera who's like does really well. So I'll say in the Champions League, with the way the draws have been rolled out, we do have like some super heavy clashes. But I'll say people should also keep an eye out for clashes that we don't normally um, look out for, like the Napoli, Eintracht Frankfurt, Benfica, Club Brugge, because I feel we're seeing possibly the best group of the best crop of the next generation of talent in those teams. So yeah. it'll be super fun, and it'll be nice if both teams can go really far in this tournament. No, 100%. This is going to be a really exciting um, round of 16. Like we said, it's wide open. We'll have more episodes where I'm sure I'm going to be able to talk a little bit more in depth on this the Champions League matchups coming up. But as far as upsets go, those are a couple that, like you mentioned too, like 
when are we normally excited for an Eintracht Frankfurt Napoli game in the Champions League? Like it's kind of a unique setup in the Champions League this year. So yeah. Yeah. Final piece here that I want to make sure we get to. Um, you know, we've had some conversations about this, just the two of us. And I think initially when the Super League was announced, and to be fair to both of us, the way that the Super League was announced was obviously a little crazy. Like Florentino Perez holding a midnight conference where like a press conference where he's just, you know, sounding off about all the failures of modern European football and says that he's going to start his own league um, with all pretty much all the major English teams, the major Italian teams, the major Spanish teams. And people hated the setup of the tournament because it came off as elitist. And I think it, kind of was but now we've kind of changed our minds here a little bit both of us on the european yeah. super league and, and i think it from a baseline perspective right we all know premier league tv rights earnings are just like so far ahead of every other league right now yeah. financial fair play isn't enforced so you have teams like chelsea spending 300 million in an off season and juve yeah. have to cook the books just to stay alive <laughs> um so yeah, what got you to change what got yeah. you to change your mind here on this? Yeah, I'll, I'll say like I've changed my mind over time. Given, first of all, I feel UEFA they haven't been uh, forthright with their FFP in terms of their enforcement of that. Also, I feel over time, like you said, when it first came out, it became like okay, us twelve are going to like go in and start our own league, and we're just going to play amongst each other, and it's just going to be a fairy tale where it's like you see the same things over and over again. And that to me felt super elitist. It felt like it didn't um, carry on a lot of the other teams. And when I look at the new plans for the Super League, like which we're going to get into, I feel it's more inclusive and it's more in line with what I feel a change of European football should be. Because the one thing I'll give the Super League credit for in that they're saying that European football has a problem, which it does. And we're not going to sit down and watch it just happen. Because the thing is, the risk is, as you said, like with the Premier League's TV money being so big. And not just that, is that they have also big investors from Asia, from the from North America, who really pump money into these clubs. Which that's why. Other they, have the luxury. Yeah. But that's why. Sorry to cut you off there, but you know what I mean? Like, that's why those they'd rather invest in teams like Newcastle and Aston Villa and teams yeah. like that mid-table Premier League teams over top level Italian teams, Spanish teams, they'd rather do it because they're going to make more return on their investment. So it's all tied in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's really all tied in. And another, like, and I'll say that's like the second leg. The third leg is that in the English markets, you see things like, for example, let's say Kukurea is a great example. He plays in Chelsea. He moved from Hetafe to Brighton for 18 million. The players, I don't think he's made outstanding changes in one year to justify his huge increase because I believe he Brighton sold him on for 61 million. And that's another leg of like financing, which clubs from other leagues aren't prior to. Like even you look at the Kunde sign-in, who Chelsea didn't really want to pay 80 or 70 million for him. But they pay 70 million for Fofana, who plays in the same league. And I feel yeah. a lot of teams outside the leagues feel like they're sort of missing out in this pie and this football money pie. And the thing is, if we want a European football that's more balanced, something drastic needs to happen either with financial fair play in terms of limiting the owner spending in, in England, or we get a brand new competition where it's like teams feel they can really thrive and it's not really just dominated by a team from one country. And I know this might be a bit um, hypocritical coming from like the Spanish teams, given that what they've done in 20 cents and that they really dominate they dominated um european football for like five years whereas just them winning the champions league and fortified the one year of league but i also feel at that point there was also there was a sense that this was just a cycle it was just temporary and i guess the feeling now is that if english clubs do start to win the champions league year in year out it might be something that could be a 20-year cycle where they just win most of it and i feel a lot of european clubs are they're looking into the future and they're seeing that and they don't want to be the version of the acb 
compared to Premier League being the NBA, which I say I feel at this point it's not gotten to that level yet, but over it's definitely years, trending there. Yes. Yeah. So the plan that Barcelona is proposing is that you would include the teams that were discussed initially in the Super League, but also teams from Germany, Portugal, France, um, all, a lot of the big French ones, and then new Italian clubs. Uh, um, excuse me. A lot of the big French ones beside PSG. And then yeah. some new Italian clubs like Roma. And I thought it was interesting in this setup, and it's going to be about 50 total teams if this sort of league were to start, they'd have weekend games that would compete with the Premier League. So obviously that sounds really cool to me. Um, so long as there was an opportunity for other teams in those respective leagues that were going to join to, you know, promotion and relegation essentially is what I'd be looking for, because I think that's what makes it equitable. Um, But it would be really interesting to see competition like that against the premier league. I'm not even sure that's possible. And I'm not even sure that it'll ever Uh, yeah, I, I feel it's an interesting bargaining position because what this does is like it gets for for now the first for the first time maybe really it's like they, the way they position the Super League is in a way where they feel they have more European sports because at this moment I, I think after they got that they got the the opinion um, the day after they said they have about thirty clubs who are beginning to lose their fear and it seems it might be about fifty clubs who might join a somewhat paramedical competition where it might be 20 in the first division or 24 in the first division and 24 in the second division or something like that and that makes it more enticing for other clubs because for example they mentioned PSV in that article who maybe gets 10 million from, from the Eredivisie and you look at you think of it as PSV they're really big historical club and they could get like 70 or 80 million from competing in this league and that's something that is very enticing but I also feel that barks on the right territory because like English clubs look at this and they're like, okay, if they do this, this can kill our golden goose. So let's try to get something going on in the negotiation. Exactly. If they really want financial fair play, let's enforce it in our own league. We'll still be the dominant league in terms of having that financial dominance. But at least the other clubs somewhat like take a chill pill now because now is I feel is the right time if you're going to make any big changes to make it because the change is trending, I, I said, in that direction, but it's not there yet. So, so now is where Real Madrid and Barcelona, Juventus, Milan, Inter, and all these other clubs, their bargaining position is possibly the strongest because if they let it continue like this, at the end of the day, Premier League is like, oh, yeah, they want to go. Like, go. Like, we still have, like, a lot of the talent here and the branding here. But now I feel... There's still some sort of balance. Absolutely. I think it's the perfect time to do something like this. And I agree with you. All this is doing is just forcing some action to make this, make European play a little bit more fair. Um, Like how's it fun and how's it fair for a team like Chelsea to be able to go out and spend 300 million on players that, you know, maybe one of them could have gone to Italy. One of them could have gone to a Spanish team. One of them could have gone to wherever. Chelsea just gets them all instead. It's, and then I I think it's like for the most uh, like basic fan of the game, they can see it from that perspective. Like, is it fair for the premier league teams to be able to have the opportunity to sign all the best and most expensive players in the world all the time. And you see with Juve, we we supposedly had a monster (laughs) off season this year. We signed free players and Bremer was our only huge signing. It was four, that was around 40 million. And that was a massive signing for us. There's just a huge difference between what teams are able to do in the summers. And so how do you think this actually plays out? Yeah, yeah. Like and just to add on to your Chelsea points, it's like they sign Timo Werner, who for like 16 million who doesn't work, then they sign Lukaku who doesn't work. It's that sort of thing where it's like Fill time in after fill time in, and because of that, like financial resource, they're able to do that. And um, you would want a situation where, like, yes, they can make that fill time, but if they do fill in that signing, they shouldn't have the resource to make an additional one. 
Exactly. If you get what I'm saying. There needs to be some sort of, so, absolutely. There needs to be some sort of consequences. Yeah. I definitely know what you're saying because I saw the consequences for Juve and making a hundred million euro signing for a 33 year old, not to mention the wages that they paid him, but that's what Chelsea's able to do. They're able to beat yeah. whoever the competition is on wages and raise the price um, to bargain with the team. And it's an unfair advantage and it's an advantage that no Italian team would ever have going against even like fifth, sixth place Premier League teams at this point. So like yeah. actually perfect example of this that I could use is you look at Charles de Catelet, like he almost went to Leeds instead of AC Milan. Now he hasn't done that well for AC Milan, but you know, it was a 38 million euro transfer and Leeds were almost willing to put it over the top if the player wasn't like, no, I need we I want to go to AC Milan. Spend Botman was supposed to go to AC Milan. He had committed to AC Milan, and then Newcastle came in and bid way more than what Milan were planning on bidding for him. And that's just the reality of the situation um, that we we face. So I'm hoping, from a selfish perspective, that there can be a little bit more fairness. Because I just think European football is better when there's good quality Italian teams in there. There's good quality Spanish teams in there. There's good quality English teams, obviously, and that'll never change, man. You said it. Like, the way that this gets resolved, no matter what, the Premier League's always going to be the top league in the world. But if you have serious competition coming from France, England, Spain, blah, 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 that's the best form that the game can take. And I don't think we're trending in that direction at all right now. No, I don't think so either. But, like, you you made a good point in terms of how this ends. I feel... There's a legal argument, which we're going to see in March. So right now, it seems like UEFA does have the right to suspend the clubs if they want to form their own league. But the thing is, the court gave them the right to form their own league, but UEFA can suspend them. Um, so when the argument comes out in March 15 or sometime in the spring, that's when we can have a proper discussion about like how actionable this is. Because if the yeah. courts or the judges decide that UEFA has all the reason, the clubs have no reason, then... It's every club is like going back to you for underneath and like begging to be restated. Yeah. But if the, if the court gives like the club reason, then it's like it's the clubs now have the bargaining power to decide how they want things to, to be, whether they want the new UEFA format, which I think is a monstrosity from fans' point of view, but might give bring more money or they can start something new that's more inclusive, that gives more money to the clubs but also gives a bit of solidarity to clubs that might not be able to enjoy that. So that's something that I'm looking forward to in the future. And I feel we just have to wait till March and we just have to wait to see how many clubs do eventually come out and say, we want this new project. Yeah. It'll definitely be interesting. Who knows how it's going to play out, honestly. But all I can say is, it would be a beautiful thing if we could just take a little bit of the power away from some yeah. of the big Premier League giants. Because I'm sick and tired of watching. I'm sick and tired of watching us lose transfers or not even be able to get in the discussion anymore. But to yeah. be fair, that's kind of what happens when your sporting infrastructure is like 1980s level. So yeah, I probably should say, it's an Italian. Uh, I'll, I'll say one thing though: it's like 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 that. That is true, and that like. With the way um, uh, with the way the other leagues are, they sort of not giving themselves a favor to compete. Like I'd say, Germany is the one league that can really compete on a financial level because of the economies as good as the United Kingdom, the spending powers as good as the United Kingdom. But they're a league that internationally they struggle because of the fifty plus one rule and yeah. the fact that they only bring in superstar players into their league. Um, with Spain and Italy, I'll say like as much as I do love the culture and I hope it never changes, is the culture is another thing that brings it down because like Spanish and Italian clubs tend to be a bit um, myopic in terms of thinking. They don't tend to think beyond Turin or Madrid or Valencia or Rome. And that's what leads them in there. There's some lack organization that's, oh, I totally that's in Germany or in England. And that's why they're behind the trend there. But I do feel, I do see both leagues tending like Serie A and La Liga tending in the right direction. And in terms of the investors that come to Serie A, in terms of the changes that's happening in Spanish football in recent years, I do see them trending in the right direction. But the only question is, is it too late? And I feel that might be an open-ended question. Fair enough. 
I think I think it's probably a question for another day too. We could probably have a, we could probably do a whole episode, and maybe we will honestly in March um, when they do come out with that decision on the Super League again too. So, yeah. all right, man. Well, I think this wraps up the episode. Thank you so much. I I literally do get a lot out of listening to you give your insight on La Liga. You know so much, not even just on La Liga, but about all European football. So it's always a blast having you on, uh, having a conversation with you, and I appreciate. Uh, being able to have you on the show here for the second episode. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast and to have someone like you so informative and a host who facilitates great conversations. Thank you, man. All right, that's episode number two. Taj, thanks so much. Take it easy and have a good uh, have a good week this week. Yeah, have Bye. a good week and have a happy new year to you and your listeners. Thanks, man. Bye, everyone. Bye.